have that conversation with them and I watch for a reaction. I, you know, if they start to shake or they panic or they can't get in their car and go home quick enough, then maybe, maybe they're not ready to go solo. So I'm gauging a reaction from them. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 88 of the Rotary Wing Show. Today's topic is first solo flights. If you're a student getting ready for your first helicopter solo, this is the episode that you want to hear. And if you're an instructor sending students solo, then you will also definitely want to listen to this one. For everyone else out there, there are some really good risk management considerations in here. And it provides another opportunity to step back from the day-to-day tasks and think about some of the legal liability that we have when we perform our jobs in aviation. That first solo flight is a a milestone for all pilots. And culturally, it gets a bit of nostalgia or mysticism wrapped around it. To help us break down the topic, we're joined today by Peter Holstein, who is a highly regarded and in-demand flight examiner here in the Australian helicopter bubble. Peter has training and testing approvals for most of the things we need in the general aviation helicopter world, sling, 9VFR, instructor ratings, low level, PPL, CPL, etc. When I needed to complete my grade one instructor training endorsement, Peter conducted the testing for that. We've also used Peter for a number of times for qualifications for our other staff instructors. In 1992, Peter opened his own flying school in the South Sydney area called AeroWasp Helicopters, which traded all the way through to 2016. And then he moved to where he is now at Touchdown Helicopters at Wollongong Airport. Peter is also a member of the International Society of Air Safety Investigators. There is a saying that experience is the best teacher. And after 30 years of sending students solo, and especially for today's discussion, first solo, you can imagine that Peter has experienced a few lessons. When it comes to aviation, I would much prefer to learn something from someone else rather than have to learn it firsthand. And with first solos, there's not a huge amount of room there to make mistakes. So let's dive in and break down the topic of first solos. Peter Holstein, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks for giving up your evening to have a chat. Oh, you're more than welcome. We're going to tackle the topic of first solos tonight. A quick outline is we'll go through the, you know, the, the why, uh, but then I guess two different takes. For so first, we'll cover in terms of a, a student position or kind of topics and talk about it like that, but then switch track yep. in the second half and tackle it from an instructor training point of view. So I guess that the most logical place to start is you came to flying in a little bit of a roundaway, roundabout sort of way. What do you remember of your first solo, whether it was fixed wing or rotary? My first solo was fixed wing. That was uh, in fixed wing, it was around about the uh, 15, 16 hour mark. It was quite a daunting prospect, and I had a, a very old instructor, was my instructor, and 
very, you know, straight down the line, that sort of thing. And uh, and he just said to me one day, what do you think about doing a little bit by yourself? And I sort of took me a bit by surprise, but I did my first circuit by myself in a, in a, uh, a Piper Warrior out of uh, Albion Park. Right. And yes, it was uh, character building, if nothing else. Look, we, we always tell people, you know, you, you never, and, and you read it, you say you, you never forget your first solo. But I, I cracked up my logbooks. I, I must admit, I can't remember too much, whether it's the 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 stress on the day or just time passes. But I was somewhat similar. I did my first solo in a, in a fixed wing, and I did Air Force Cadets. We used to do flying camps out in Amberley. Yep. And then I just checked my logbooks. So it must be in the end of year 11 down at uh, Coolangatta. And, yeah, I did it in a, in a little tomahawk. But I can't actually remember much of that first flight. I, I know I did it. I remember a, an, an area solo later on with a passenger, I guess, as, as GPT. It was a very smoky day, and, and looking back, I, we probably shouldn't have gone. But I don't remember too much about the, the first fixed-wing solo. first rotary one was at Wagga Wagga, and that was going through on a, on a 206 with uh, the Army training. Right. Well, that, yeah, that'll be pretty thrilling. My my first helicopter one was out of Mangalore. Uh, Ray Cronin was my instructor, and uh, I was about I had about eleven hours, but I, I had about a thousand hours in airplanes, maybe a little bit more actually. I'd gone up and done a conversion across to helicopters and uh, in a Bell forty seven, so I had a, I had a fair background in aviation, so I sort of took to it pretty pretty much like a duck to water, so they say. Yeah, it was the same old thing. But the, the only difference was. In that particular circuit, I remember looking across at the other seat and thinking, whatever you do, don't stop, because I haven't got a clue about what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> it was quite daunting, actually. But I pulled it off, obviously. I'm still here today. And, uh, yeah, I, I was a bit a bit flummoxed about I, I, I didn't feel like I was ready myself, which is very interesting sort of uh, concept. A lot of people have that feeling on their first solo. Let's talk about why we do so in a, in a training program. And I guess we can talk about, you know, different training programs and the, and the different aims for it. A lot of stuff we're going to talk about tonight is a, a context for us here in Australia and our jurisdiction and I guess the, the CASA setup. So FAA is different and other countries yep. have their own different thing. And, and I guess the aim of a, a CASA PPL or CPL course is different again to the military. So we can talk about some of the, the differences there. Why, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a big achievement, a big milestone. But what's the purpose of of solo flight in in flight training? I think primarily, and you get a lot of different opinions is across the board from different schools and what have you. A lot of them think it's a waste of time. I don't really know how people come with that concept because I think solo is incredibly important for building confidence and. In the in the individual person, you know, they they know that they can do this. Can you imagine taking your first group of passengers, for instance, on a charter flight, but it was the first time you'd ever flown that machine by yourself? I, I think that would be um, I think that would be far more daunting than your first solo. So it's all about building confidence, about you know, building the pilot's own abilities of being able to make decisions because there's nobody there to ask questions of, other than by the radio, perhaps. But yeah, it, I think it's very, very integral to the training. It's a, a big milestone. When most people think about doing flight training, whether fixed wing or helicopters, it's it's the first kind of of step, isn't it? That you have actually gone from zero to achieving something. And I think that's why it holds such a, a special place for people. And it's that first goal that you set when you when you start flying training. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And it's quite daunting for some people. Others, you know, they can't wait to do it. And uh, it, it's something that is unique to each. Everybody's experience is, is totally unique. There's no, there's lots of similarities, but, you know, everybody treats it differently. Some people are daunted by it. Some people are terrified of it. It's a turning point in some people's careers. They decide not to go any further because it scares the crap out of them. That happens as well occasionally. But it's very, very important. I think it's, it's an essential element of the syllabus. In the big scheme of things, what are some of the, the building blocks? So the notes we've got here, you know, write things down in terms of uh, the legal side, medical, and again, different jurisdictions, you know, different things. We used to have a, a student pilot license in Australia. Uh, that's now gone. Uh, so there's a, a bunch of rules there you need to have, yep. you know, photo ID, medical. Normally, I'm guessing it's going to be similar for most countries. There'll need to be some kind of language proficiency or a radio kind of license or certificate or, or training. What are the other sort of bits and pieces for an Australian uh, scenario? Okay, so we've got, let's have a look at that. We've got, firstly, they have to have the right medical. They have to have completed the syllabus up to that point that, uh, and to a very high standard, to be honest with you, uh, to, to meet those competencies up to that point. The, um, they have to have training. They don't have to have a radio licence per se, but they have to have training in the use of the radio and they have to demonstrate that to the person sitting inside. They have to have usually passed at most schools it'll be a, a BAK exam, basic aeronautical knowledge, and and an engineering paper on the aircraft they're gonna fly. And the biggest thing is that the student himself is ready to go solo. We might talk about the competency side of things when we're talking with the instructors. Our you know our manual has a, a grading of, of one to four. I know that the standard customer has like one to three. And I guess it's it's a little bit of Yep. qualitative assessment of, of how you're going to score someone. But when they're going, when people are going solo, it's a, a subset of that PPL or CPL competencies. So at that point, they don't, they're not trained right. on everything. I guess it's trying to draw a line on the sand in terms of how much you're going to train someone to get them to that point and uh, what they can kind of absorb and, and how much they need to know to safely do that first flight. Well, I, I suppose that, that for most people, that's technically assessed through a consistent, competent performance. So for most people, the first solo is usually a session of a circuit or circuits, right? Uh, so we're looking for we're looking for demonstrated consistency in being able to perform the circuit. Now there's a whole pile that comes before that. There's all the all the elements of the of the syllabus up to that point, including autos and that sort of thing. But if we think about this from a practical point of view, uh, we'll say the average person on the street goes solo around the 20-hour mark. If a person's got to demonstrate total competencies in, for instance, being able to pull off an auto, then it's not going to happen in 20 hours. So we, they need to demonstrate sufficient competency to be able to deal with one of those things. And I, I, I really hate saying this, but the truth is we would expect that if an engine were to stop for a student going first solo, that we're probably not going to get much of a helicopter back, but we hope they'll be, they'll come out of it okay. You know what I mean? That comes back to that risk management. So the chances of someone having an engine failure on that particular exposure, if we talk risk language, we talk about uh, the you know, likelihood yep. and, and exposure, and it, it, it's pretty small. I, I guess if they can turn towards the airfield, keep an auto-rotation profile, keep the, the RPM up, have some kind of flare to reduce the, the speed and the impact at the bottom, at that point, that's yep. that's kind of where we're aiming for. 
that, that's exactly what we're aiming for. But of course, the strategies we put in place to minimise that happening uh, are things like, you know, we make sure there's sufficient fuel, the, the weather is correct, the, the circuit's not loaded up with other traffic. So we, we have some strategies in place that make it as easy as possible and most least likely for something like that to happen. Do you know what I mean? So we're looking for strategies that minimise that risk or, in fact, all but negate that risk. If we won't totally negate it, but we can certainly minimise it. Just through, just through sound knowledge, you know, you wouldn't send somebody on for a solo five minutes before last flight. You'd be asking for trouble to do that. Or you'd pick your times. Warrenbong, for instance, we've got RPT comes into there. We make sure we're not sending somebody off on a first solo at the same time that we're expecting the RPT flights to come in. So we're trying to minimise their workload, the stress that's going to be caused for them, and the possibility of conflict with other traffic and what have you. And of course, the biggest thing we do on a first solo is we always broadcast over the frequency that this is a first solo, so that other people might actually take into account and make allowances for this guy flying around by himself for the first time ever. What do you say to people when they, before they start training, they're asking, how long is it going to take me to go solo? How do you kind of broach that topic in terms of that it's, you know, everyone's different, it's not a race? Yep. Well, we, the, the first starting point has to be the syllabus. So we say the syllabus calls for a minimum of X amount of hours and these are the things you've got to go through before you get there. And I said before, we come across a whole wide variety of different people. You've got people with expectations that think after two hours they're ready for solos. You and I both know they're not. And we have other guys that will do 40 hours and they're still not. They still don't feel they're ready to go solo. You may, but they may not. The truth is both the instructor and the student have to be quite confident that that person's capable of doing this. It's okay for me to think he's going to be okay, but he's, he's lacked confidence, then I wouldn't send him solo. So we start off by telling them what the syllabus requires and what the uh, what the CASIS recommendations are, and we work towards that. But we also point out the fact that they're not laid down, died in the wall figures. You do, at 20 hours, you're not going to go solo if you're not ready or if you haven't completed all of the syllabus items or you're not showing competency or consistency. It's very important that I think that you're up front with that right from the word go. I made a list. There's a bunch of things that kind of affect that for people because you've got people who are coming in and they're going to be flying once a day, twice a day, and that's essentially all they're doing is they're in training until they get their license. Yep. And then you've got the people who are chipping away every Saturday and sort of come in and do a, a flight. That's going to make a massive difference just in terms of continuity and recency in, in, in whatever hour that, that turns out to be. And I guess it's hard, it's hard to... Well, I guess what we want to do is take the focus away from it being a, a number of hours. It's just you're ready when you're ready. I, I think you're right. That's, and, that, and you've given some good examples of the differences there. So somebody that's there five days a week, buying two, maybe sometimes three hours a day, then they, they're probably going to be ready in, in the required hours. But somebody that comes in, and we have students, for instance, who can only afford to fly once a month, they will still get to go solo. But... Firstly, it's going to take a year and or, or longer, and it's probably going to take quite a bit more than 20 hours because that, con that, that continuation of their training is not there. So a lot of the flying that you're doing, you're reviewing something you did last month. You know what I mean? So uh, as long as you're honest with them and you point those things out, but you can still do it this way. There's nothing stopping you doing it that way, but it's going to take you a bit longer. 
our course, and yours will be the same, it's set up as a 105-hour uh, course. Now, if someone's a couple of hours yep. late going solo, generally it, you absorb that and in many cases it's not going to make any difference to the actual length of the, the commercial course at the end. So that's something to consider too. If someone, if they're finding themselves a little bit behind at that point, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to struggle the way through. People sort of plateau at different points. They do. Everybody has. Everybody has their Achilles heel flying. In the case of helicopters, for the most part, it's the hovering aspect. You know, how long is it going to take somebody to master hovering? Well, that can be one or two hours. That could be 10 hours. That could be 20 hours. Uh, everybody is slightly different. It depends on their background, what they've been doing with their hands and eyes and ears and all that sort of stuff, their motor skills, so to speak, their call of motion. So that, that's actually quite correct. That, that's the sort of stuff that, that we do need to explain to people. Back to that point that you make, the, if somebody takes a little bit longer to go solo, we won't guarantee, for instance, we will never guarantee a private licence because how long they get to go, we can't move on. Until they go solo in the syllabus, we can't move on to what comes after that. If it takes them 35 hours to go solo on a 50-hour course, then it is going to take them longer to complete those other elements to, to the required standard. The commercial license is slightly different because the the from from the private element onwards, you're virtually doing the course again, but to far tighter tolerances and what have you. So quite often there's a bit of fat in there. So there is room, wriggle room to actually make it the hundred and five hours, even if it took them a little bit longer to go solo. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and that's kind of my experience too, is if people get hung up somewhere, yeah. they don't immediately start have to start stressing about down the track, and that's counterproductive anyway, just having that stress. It is, and, and the, the instructor's role comes into play where you point out these things that, that might have been a bit of a shortcoming in getting to go solo, it might have taken you 30 hours or 25 hours. Well, that doesn't mean that you're going to have that tacked on at the end of a, of a commercial license. Don't get me wrong, it may actually lead to that, but as a general rule, it doesn't. The only one I've got there to add on about experiences, and I only found it today as I was putting together some notes. In the US, under the FAA, uh, there's a, the SFAR, sorry, SFAR 73 for the Robinson types. And yeah, I just noticed in there it says yep. 20 hours minimum in an R22 or R44 before you can go uh, US under the FAA rules. Sorry, under, under solo under the FAA rules. That, that, that's correct. I don't know that we have that in the Australian system. There is a recommendation from Robinson that that people do have those sort of hours before they're considered to go solo, especially in the 22. The, it's, it's an interesting conundrum, actually, because the, the requirements are a minimum, sort of a minimum of 20 hours. That's the CASA recommended standard. But if you've got somebody that is super sharp, comes from an aeroplane background in particular, maybe a gliding background or something, with a lot of experience, that, that change, that, that readiness to be go solo in a helicopter can actually occur quite a bit earlier. I have seen it for somebody that was probably ready to go solo around the 12, 13 hour mark. We didn't do it at that point. We pointed out that there was, you know, lots of justification if something were to go pear-shaped, we'd need to justify to CASA and to the insurance company probably that, that that person was actually ready to go solo. But where you see those cases, what, do you hold somebody up for? As long as they've met the competencies in the syllabus, they're probably right to go. But there are those other considerations that come to play. Okay, well, we might 
shortly jump to the student side in terms of preparing a student and, and what we're going to brief them on. But before we do that, what's the, yep. what's the first solo sequence look like when you're sending someone solo? Do you have a, a particular, you know, is it one circuit, is it three circuits? Do you modify it? And, and what do you use to decide what they're going to do on their first solo? Okay, so from when I'm about to send somebody solo, as I said, I'm looking for the syllabus to be completed, consistent performance with very, very minimal input from me. In fact, probably nil input for me for about maybe five circuits. So it will be tacked on over the last 15 minutes usually of a session of circuits. And on that particular session, there's a lot of different viewpoints on this, but on that particular session that I'm about to send somebody solo, I don't add anything else. It'll just be the circuit. And so we'll plug, plug, plug the circuit around for five, six goes with no input from myself or absolute minimal input from myself. And if they can do that, and they land, everyone will be a landing and a takeoff, uh, maybe a 180 or 360-degree turn in the hover, and then go, and if they can do that, handle the radio, handle the traffic, handle everything, then they're ready, to, in my opinion, I'm ready to let them have a go by themselves. Comes back to another point out of interest, a lot of people spring it on people, and they go, oh, I think you're ready to go. Uh, how about you do one by yourself? I, I don't sort of subscribe to that concept. I like to forewarn them a little bit earlier, maybe two sessions beforehand, but, you know, if you keep performing like this, you're going to be ready to go solo. And I will watch them. I'll find a place to tell them that where there's nothing else happening, perhaps just coming back in and parking out the front of the hangar, and I'll have that conversation with them, and I watch for a reaction. I, You know, if they start to shake or they panic or they can't get in their car and go home quick enough, then maybe maybe they're not ready to go solo. So I'm gauging a reaction from them. If, they, if they're enthusiastic and, and, you know, the average person on the street knows that they're getting close anyhow. They know they're doing it. And you can see the performance improving and, and consistently uh, being able to do it. They know they're ready to go. One of the biggest dangers I find is people that think they're ready to go and they're not. And you know they're not. That can be, that can be a pretty dangerous sort of situation. That lack of patience, that impatience to go, oh, you know, we sometimes see this, by the way, when somebody is learning to fly with somebody else also learning to fly, maybe a mate or a, a, a partner or something, where that one person's going leaps and bounds ahead and the other person isn't. That competitiveness sometimes can lead to um, people having expectations that are beyond, you know, their ability sort of thing. Thankfully, it's, it's pretty rare, though. Most people, like, a flying helicopter is, is, reasonably, is reasonably tricky. So I, I think if you had to split the population, most people would be erring on the side of, oh, okay, if, you, if you're pretty sure I'm ready, I'm ready to have a crack at it, as opposed to the other way around, luckily. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that they'll take what the instructor says. And this is why the instructor's role is so very important, that they, um, they do know what they're looking for. They, they do have the ability to judge that somebody... You know, the, the briefing before they go solo is super important because the, look at the 22, for instance. We, we teach, for instance, we never preset pedals. Every time we come up the hover, you apply whatever pedal you need to keep that aircraft in a straight line. So we always start off in the neutral position and apply what we need. When you 
teach people to preset pedals, you know, you're coming up the hobby, you'll need one inch of left pedal, for instance. And when you get out, that's not right. In fact, the machine's going to be totally out of out of plumb in that particular case. So the techniques teaching that sort of stuff and briefing what their expectations are, you know, that's going to be a different weight and balance. It's going to be a different performing aircraft. It not want to, doesn't want to come down when you get around on the final sort of thing. And all of that stuff's got to be explained to quite a bit of quite a degree, actually. Well, okay, let's do that now. Then let's let's go so that, through that. So on on blogs, you're uh, I'm in the in the classroom. Can you, you just take us through a little bit in depth in each of those points here about the center of gravity and, and the performance? Okay, so I, I would start by explaining that. I'm 100 odd kilos. I'm sitting in the in the left hand seat. When I get out, there's 100 kilos missing from one side. So that aircraft's not going to sit just like you're used to it sitting for every lesson that we've done up to this point. The other thing is, as we uh, as we come up to the hover, for instance, you're going to need X amount of power to bring up you and me and the helicopter into the hover. However, once I'm out, there's 100 kilos of power you don't need to produce through the tail rotor to keep that machine in a straight line. So you need to apply whatever pedal you need to keep that in a straight line. And I think that 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 is a super important point about what they're actually going to do. Um, we explained that uh, in the hover, the machine's going to split slightly different. So it's interesting because quite often I find that you would, you would in a 44, for instance, you would never send a person for a solo with full tanks behind them because it's going to want to sit on its bum with lots of forward cyclic, for instance, which may actually take them by surprise because they're not used to that. So that, that needs to be very clearly briefed to them that the, the, what the machine's going to do when it comes up to a hover sort of thing. So you would explain all the different param- all the all the parameters that are going to be different from what they're used to. So a bit of unlearning there because remember for 20 hours they've been flying this machine with you sitting beside them and now it's a different ball game. So, and the only way you, you can't demonstrate that to them because to do that you need to get out. Uh, so it can only come, it only come from briefing. And, <laughs> and most solicitors, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And most solicitors, we haven't we haven't done slope takeoffs or slope landings at this point, and and that different role and the different skid picking up. Yeah, it's. I think most people yep. when they come back are generally surprised at the difference and. I did the quick numbers here before we started. If you're in a 22 at max takeoff weight at 622 kilos, you take 100 kilograms out, that aircraft is now 85% less. And, and we don't fly at max takeoff weight. Correct. So that 85% less is going to be even you know, even a bigger change when you take out 100 kilograms. But yeah, I think everything, every time someone's come back, I think they've been surprised by how different the the hover position is. Absolutely. And you can see it. If I- I usually, um, I'll move away about maybe 30, 40 feet away with the radio and I'll give them a thumbs up and tell them, right, I'm away, no no traffic around them, off you go, make a call, do your thing. You'd be surprised uh, that first pickup is really quite daunting for most of them. And the, the other thing is they get a big shock because it's going to come off the ground a lot earlier than it would normally with the two of you on board. It's going, In other words, it's going to use a lot less power to get airborne. So there's so much that has to be explained to them. And when you do get out for the very first time from an instructor's perspective, the first question you say to yourself, have I actually told them everything? Have I explained everything? Is, it, is there anything I'm missing? 
I think it's important that the instructor stays in view. So I'll normally move away from the machine, but stay in, in not in line of sight, not in front of them or anything, but in a point where they can actually look to me for a bit of confidence. And I always tell them, to glance over to me and I'll give you a thumbs up and you're right to go. And I'll still be there when they come back. So from the first solo perspective, first, second, third, our policy is that until a person is capable of doing one hour on their own in the circuit, then we are there for the whole time. And we'll get back in at the end of that and ride back into the hangar with them. So we're there as a security blanket. We have a radio. We can answer any questions if there's a problem. Or we can actually tell them to stop, for instance, if they perhaps haven't seen another aircraft or heard another aircraft. There's, there's lots of things we can do there. I, we try not to interfere, as in we won't tell them, yell at them or do any of that sort of stuff. We'll, we'll just be there as a, as a bit of a security blanket while they do the first, second or third solo. And we build that up, by the way. Our, our strategy is 15 minutes at the end of a session of consistent performance, so the end of an hour. The next one will be maybe 15, 20 minutes by themselves, again with us standing there, then half an hour by themselves. They're always at the end of a session, so a half-hour session of solo will be after half an hour, dual, and we'll start to add some things into that. We might revise a hydraulic failure or revise an engine failure towards the end of the like third or fourth session. And then build up to that one hour thing. Okay. Uh, there's a couple more points we'll cover there. Just to leave off the performance or the center of gravity, touched on it there before yep. about when they turn base and lower the lever, they've really got to dump it to get the aircraft down because it's, it's that much lighter again. So that's the other things people come back and say, yeah, geez, it, it really got to, to height quickly and it, it didn't want to come down. Yeah, that can be a 44 is a classic for that. The 44 is quite daunting. Uh, you can actually prepare them for that. And, and one way of doing that is you actually get them to start the entry to uh, descending a little earlier than you would normally in the normal course of circuit. We actually teach them to actually set themselves up from the moment they start the base turn and then fly power all the way down. So we always start off with, in the case of the 44, we start off with 15 inches and 70 knots, nothing less than 70 knots until they turn on the final. And from the moment we actually get those two parameters set up, its power is required. So if it's not coming down, put some more, put the lever down a little bit further. Put yeah. it even further if it's still not coming down. Yeah. The other part is looking across at the empty seat. Uh, when you're on downwind and you finally get things sorted out, you've got a you know a couple of seconds there before you have to start looking at the base turn point, and you sort of look outside and you, and you look at the, the empty seat next to you, and it's amazing how much that, that draws the attention. Uh, it can be quite daunting, actually. It, it can be daunting for them that all, all, that security blanket, that blanket that's going to always help them out if something goes wrong or, or tell you that you're not doing the right thing is no longer there. And, of course, standing on the ground with a radio, we don't know that either. We don't, from up there, from down there, we can't, we can't see how it's all going there. Once again, the briefing side of the pre-solo, the first solo, is absolutely essential. Because you've got to tell them about all of those things. And you can minimise a lot of that impact. We always make sure seatbelts are done up. We also always make sure there's a door on. If we cut off and we lower the door, doors off, we make sure a door is on in that particular case on their first side. We make sure the headset is maybe unplugged and put on the back seat or I'll take it with me so that it's not going to all of a sudden fall off a talk or, or uh, the air's blowing on it and it's creating any distraction for them whatsoever. So... There's lots of little things like that that you can do to minimise stuff. 
You want to make it as painless as possible, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Very much so. Peter, the next comment I've got there is uh, about piloting command or being the aircraft captain. This is their first opportunity to actually do that. And now they're totally responsible for that yep. safe operation of flight. Do you spend a bit of time talking about that and, and the decision-making on that part? Absolutely. Um, we make one other point that's interesting, and that is that the only way anybody else in the whole world knows how that flight's going is through their use of the radio. You know, it can be total chaos inside there, but if they come across on the radio sounding professional and confident, what have you been, then everybody else is treated in that regard. Do you know what I mean? We put a fair bit of emphasis on the fact that if you can get the, the methodology of getting around the circuit and making the right calls and all this sort of stuff and, and answering somebody else if they call you up, make sure you're listening for it and, 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 and respond. That show of confidence to other people outside of there will actually build your own confidence or boost your own confidence uh, in the professionalism side of it. So it comes down to being a pilot command. You're going to make the decisions. If you're not happy with the approach and, and you need to go around, go around, you know, so it's important. I suppose that's the only... The, uh, the biggest, probably the second biggest thing we actually encourage them to do, and that is that uh, we always make sure that they're capable of performing a go-round uh, with the right combinations, the right power settings and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and the right process for going around because that's the only other thing that might actually confront them on that first side for whatever reason, you know. Yeah, and this other one, again, military term there, but, you know, actions on in terms of if they do have to go around, if you just covered. The other thing we sometimes talk about is just do a couple of role plays in terms of aircraft are coming in from different directions and you're in different parts of the circuit. Yep. You know, what are you gonna do? Or if, if this is a situation, here's the, you know, the best thing to do is you know, slow down, let them in front or extend base and, and follow the aircraft around and just give them a, a few different scenarios to sort of role play. Yeah, again, there's, uh, there's little tricks there. We point out to people, uh, there's a couple of things, especially with the helicopter in a, uh, Wollongong's a classic because we have such a huge mix of aircraft. We have helicopters, aeroplanes, jets, uh, trikes, gyrocopters. So it's a major, major mix. The one thing that aeroplane guys tend not to pick up on is that helicopter will fly a diminishing speed approach, whereas an aeroplane's going to fly a constant speed approach. So if they get behind you, it is very, very easy for them to catch up and all of a sudden you've got an issue where they need to go around. And it could be another student. We actually try to teach people that always treat the other aircraft in the circuit as another student, right? So it's somebody that might do something that you're not expecting. And we also make the point that the only aircraft from your aspect, the only aircraft that you can control is one that's in front of you. You can slow up or you can manoeuvre. One behind you, you've got no control over him whatsoever, right? Uh, because he's in your situation if, 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 if he was in front of you. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes it's best to go a little further downwind and let the aeroplane get out of the way. Let them do their circuit and you come in behind them sort of thing. We teach people to start to act professionally and make decisions based upon what other people are doing as well. Make sense? Yeah, you just remind me of something else. I didn't make the notes. I totally forgot about it. That exact scenario where you've got fixed wing coming in behind and they're calling short final and, and the helicopter's still, the student's still trying to come back to the hover. We basically tell them, look, if you're on short final, if you're on final and you've got the runway in front and you're making your approach and you're solo, you own that runway. Don't feel the time pressure to do something different to what you've been trained just because someone's calling short final and trying to hurry you up. Is That runway is yours Correct. to use until you're finished with it. 
Correct. And uh, for that very purpose, we actually teach people to go to the runway. So the first silos and, and quite a bit after that as well. We don't introduce them going grass left, grass right, that sort of thing, except for practicing emergencies, that sort of stuff. We teach them to use the runway. And we also teach them that if you're on finals for that runway, it's yours. Other people have got to give way to you. You have exactly the same rights as everybody else. And I'll give you a really good example there. I went to Bathurst a couple of months ago and I was on finals for the, the runway at Bathurst. And there was a, a student solo that had was at the holding point in an aeroplane. And you wouldn't believe this, but the CFI of that company called that, that aeroplane and said, uh, you're right to backtrack, that's a helicopter. And I went, whoa, 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 hold on, stop. Uh, I'm on finals for runway whatever, all right? Just hold your position. And the student did. When I went and got fuel, the, the CFI actually came across and saw me and said, oh, what was all that about? And I said, well, why did you tell that person to come out? And I, I was for the runway. I, I didn't say I was for anywhere else. I was for the runway. And I had to right away. Oh, but you could have moved off. Yeah, maybe I could have. But what if that was a student? That's a manoeuvre that they may not be comfortable with. They, they're on the other side of it. They'd have to move outside the markers. We don't know what's out there in another place. We might at Wollongong, but we don't somewhere else. That's a nonsense. You need to make sure that student understands that an aircraft on finals is an aircraft. It doesn't say helicopter, airplane, jumbo. It's an aircraft. Simple as that. So there's a lot of lot of other opinions about what helicopters can and can't do out there. Yeah, especially that first solo. It's we want to keep it very very simple, and there's still a stage where they can hover safely but they definitely haven't done a lot of air transit or, or anything like that where you're doing something a little bit more dy dynamic. The hovering is normally very, very slow and, and, and steady uh, rather than, than rushing things along. The other two points there I've got, or the next couple of ones, you touched on about radio comms, about using plain English. If, if you're somewhere in the circuit and you're not sure exactly what to say, forget the aviation speak, just press the button and, and say, hey, red, yeah. red aircraft, wherever you are, solo student, and, and just, just talk. Yeah. And, and again, we um, if, it, if they're taught if they're taught the radio um, from the monkey see monkey do type thing, quite often, quite often in these early stages, we know from PMI, for instance, that one of the things you gets turned off once somebody gets on the controls, their hearing gets turned off, right? And you know that you'll hear people calling Joe Bloggs on finals, uh, you know, what's your intention, sort of thing, and they don't answer. Well, they don't answer because not because they're ignorant or arrogant. They don't answer because they don't hear the call because that's turned off. And it's, that's one of the tricks for the instructor is how do we turn that on, right? How do we actually get that thing working, that situational awareness type stuff? And the simple way of doing that is for a student is um, whenever you hear radical, so you, where, where was that, what was that aircraft? Or where was that aircraft coming from? And if you keep doing that, every time you hear a radical, the guy will go, well, oh, oh, yeah, that's Alpha Bravo Charlie and he's over at Windbank, for instance. You start to turn that on, but you have to turn it on because when they get into that first solo type situation, that is real intense stuff. And the first thing that goes is the hearing. So the hearing gets switched off. The concentration levels are so high that, that, that they've actually shed some of their senses. <laughs> Look, it, it, it's, that's definitely for me. When I get loaded up, that's, a, that's the first thing that I lose. I know just personally that's, uh, that's very true uh, for me. Peter, the responsibility, all the way through, we're trying to train the students up as aircraft captain and pilot in command and you know, whether it's discipline or responsibility, however you want to talk about it. 
but there's also that responsibility on them at this stage to speak up if they're not ready, slightly ill or for tired, or I guess rehammering that idea again, there's no rush or, or race to go solo. And the other note I've got there, it's not a, it's not a zero risk activity. It's, it's, it's very controlled risk. We will talk about a lot of the things we'll do with weather and things like that as well to control the risk, but it's yep. not a, not a zero risk activity. And so there's a responsibility on them to speak up too. Exactly. Again, that comes down to the, the, the instructor-student relationship. You, you have to invite them. Sometimes you have to force that. A guy will turn up and they've, they've got a cold, for instance, and you say, do you, really, do you really want to go flying today, right? Or they're just tired or whatever. Encourage them to speak up. It, you don't have to do this today. And if, you're, if, if I were to say, okay, I'm about to get out, you're going to go solo, and that person's not ready, they really should speak up. And I'll, I'll tell you a little, again, and a little analogy. I had a, I had a student in Camden that had 45 hours, hadn't been solo, was absolutely ready to go solo from about 25 hours. But every single day that I'd say, what do you reckon, do a couple by yourself? And he'd go, oh, no, 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 I've, I've got a meeting at 4 o'clock, or uh, oh, no, um, one more circuit, one more circuit. And I knew there was a, there was a, a lack of confidence there, right? And we worked at it and worked at it. And, and we just, honestly, we had flogged the circuit for 20 hours because we couldn't move on because you, you and that solo is important to actually move on to the other elements. Anyhow, eventually, um, I said to him, what do you reckon? You, you, you're well and truly up to it. Do you want to go, would you like to do one by yourself? And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. And it was a sort of a, yeah, okay. But remember, the guy had 45 hours and had been flying beautifully. So anyhow, I got out and I walked over the fence. I had the radio in my hand and I heard the machine come up the hobble. I turned around and what? And then all of a sudden, it wound down again. I looked over and he's back on the ground. I walked over. He had projectile vomited right across the windscreen, all over himself. And I honestly, I have never seen a person with the colour that he had in his skin. He was grey. Now, he never, ever, ever went solo. And the real truth is, I had a real dilemma in that I couldn't take the risk of ever sending him solo again because I wasn't, there was nothing to guarantee me that that wasn't going to happen. What if it happened on halfway downwind or something? And it, it was an anxiety attack. And uh, to this day, I still see this guy around here who lives in uh, Kayama. And he always says to me, oh, I must come back and do my, finish my licence. And I think, oh, not really. Wow, okay, that's pretty um, severe. He'd never... He really did, and it turned out his his mother actually came and saw me that as a kid he had been kicked in the head by a cow, believe it or not, and he his anxiety was a very serious issue for him. If he'd been asked to stand up and speak at school, he would throw up. It, it, it would just happen, and that's exactly what happened in the aircraft. So, I, as I said, I was he had a medical and everything, but I had a dilemma now that I I couldn't possibly take and I had to be very upfront with him say you know I'm not going to be able to send you solo because I'm I can't guarantee this is not going to happen somewhere else we need to get this sorted out and he he agreed and he decided to stop training but um took a fair bit of hours to, to discover that that was a real issue for him and you know this was a guy that was that was wanted to do this so much that just having I got out and it's just all overwhelmed him. So you've got to be careful of that sort of thing as well. I was going to say, this is where gauging the reaction 
And you know, you might say from 25 to 45, why did I not get out before that? Because I was never confident that he was ready. He certainly covered everything. But there was always that niggling doubt there that this, this guy doesn't want to do this yet. He's, he's not ready. I'm ready. He's not. Yeah, so this is where uh, experience comes to play. You gauge a guy, judge a guy, and see that they're going to be able to do what it is you need them to do. Peter, the next point I've got is self-reflection or analysis of fault correction. This is probably not a, a big thing for first solos or even the first couple of solos, but our Australian course, it's got 35 hours of solo in a 105-hour course. So if people are just going to go up in, in the sky and, yep. and, and burn holes and burn their, their solo time, that's a, a huge chunk of their course that they're not getting a lot of benefit from. How do you talk people through in terms of like maximizing their solo time in and getting that skill of self-reflection? Because once they leave training, that's the only way they're going to get better is by picking up their mistakes and, and trying to keep refining and keep getting better and better. Okay, so um, we've talked about the first three or four sessions of solo in the circuit. We would, uh, I always, I always, I try very much so that every solo session, there is something for them to do. So I might say, okay, it's a training area solo. I want you to come back and join over the top of the field. I want you to join overhead and join the circuit properly, make all the radio calls, do all that sort of stuff. Just by say, by making them do that instead of coming and joining on base and in and whatever, giving them little little tasks that require them to make decisions and you know be at the right height and, and join the correct way and everything. You give them again the ability to build confidence and 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 actually fly the machine in. Some slightly different parameters, you know, over the top of 1500, joining the dead side, crosswind, and all that sort of stuff. You're building up accuracy, you're building up confidence, you're building up their ability to, to judge things and to take into account other, other airspace users and what have you. So, yeah, so I, yeah, there's nothing worse than you get to the end of a commercial license, and the thing that the guy's missing is the solo time, and they've actually got to go out and just buy 15 hours of solo to meet the requirements. That's really quite a wasted episode. Um, do, you, do you know what I mean? So, so from a from a school's perspective, the planning of that and to actually u- utilise that properly is is pretty important. We try. We've got a computerised sort of system where people come back when we write down student notes, and we've got to fill out a, a full training record anyway if they're they're going solo. So we actually get them, and again, not for the first couple of ones, but later on to sit there and write their, their own notes up from their, their solo flight so that they've got something they can reflect back on. But it, it also forces them that they know they're going to come back and have to actually produce some kind of notes for themselves. And it, it just gets them thinking yep. about how they went and, and where they could improve because, yeah, I'm just repeating myself, but I know once, once you leave training, <laughs> that's, that's the only way you get better is by, by trying to be self-analytical. Yep. Okay, so... You hit on a very interesting point, and you hit on something that is very often missed. Uh, in, I would go as far as saying in most schools, and that is the debrief. The debrief is, I think, not quite as important as the, the briefing before, but it is uh, nonetheless it's still important. And that is to go through the flight with them, even if it's solo, go through it with it chronologically. You did this, you went where, you did that. What did you see out there? Who did you? And you, if you've been listening on the radio, you'll hear their calls and what have you. And you would, you would say, you know, you made a call at Windang, that call was wrong or what have you. So you go through it in a chronological order. And if it's solo, you get them to debrief you. 
this is what I did, this is what I saw, this is, I had a bit of a trouble trouble here, or, you know, if it's on a nav, I went got to Goulburn and there was traffic there, and I think I joined on the wrong side. Or, that's all, that's, that's what learning is all about. But if you get them to enunciate that to you, that, that's good. Let's switch, Peter, to the instructor side. I think we've covered a lot of these, but and some of them seem super obvious, but, but sometimes without pointing them out, people will miss it. So the first one I've got there, and I, I think you've talked about that in terms of, of no surprises that you do a, a lead up and, and you're sort of judging how they go. And, you know, can they conduct safely conduct yep. a, a circuit without instructor input? That's what they're going to have to do when they go solo. And you spoke about too about on the radio side, do they have enough extra capacity above and beyond just controlling the aircraft to then actually respond to making a, a decision? If we come back to the instructor's perspective here now, not so much the student, how do we get an instructor? How do we how do we get an instructor to be able to teach and assess that? I think there's some flaws in the system that we have here in Australia. We let a guy go and they get 150 hours, for instance, and the CFI comes along and signs him off and, and says, right, you're right to send people solo, right? He's a grade two instructor now, you're right to send people first solo. But what sort of training have you given that person about assessing this stuff, about is a guy ready? And this is, I think this is where we really do need, and I'm, I'm glad to say that in a lot of cases, the grade, the, the grade three instructor rating has a serious element of mentoring associated with it, and that's a great thing. That's something that I think we've missed for a lot of, a lot of years, and that is where somebody else seeing this even comes along and goes, well, have you thought about this? You can, you can have training days. You know, it's raining and you've got a couple of grade threes on your staff or some junior grade twos or something, and you take them into a room and you role play with them. You know, Jay Bloggs is ready to go solo. Bloggs, what do you need to see from him? What do we need from a, a document side of things? What do you need? How are you going to assess that he's ready to go solo? What are the things you're looking for? We don't see a real lot of that here in the city world. We certainly do in the military side of things. So there's a huge gap between those two, if you know what I mean. Having said that, I know some schools that do do it and that do it quite well. But that falls back on the instructor, you know, their ability to assess, their ability to and at least know what it is they're looking for. You know, I ask this when I do a grade two instructor rating. One of the questions I will ask is, how do you know a guy's ready to go solo? Oh, he's been to You know, tell me a whole pile more than that, right? And it, it, it may, in fact, be the first time they've even considered it. Let's cover off some of those points then. So let's talk about traffic and circuit traffic. What are we looking for there in trying yep. to assess the traffic on a day is suitable? On a day that's suitable, we look for, obviously we look for, um, I won't say minimum traffic, but traffic that they're comfortable with. So if, they, if they're used to flying, for instance, out of Bankstown with lots of other traffic around, they're going to be far better equipped to deal with traffic than, say, a guy flying out of Jasper's Brush where they only see one other aircraft a week. Now, if all of a sudden three other aircraft come in there, this guy's going to be flummoxed. He's going to be out of his rooftop. So this is where the instructor's role comes into play. You need to gauge what this guy's done, where he's done it, how he's done it, and what sort of traffic is there. I said earlier that we wouldn't send a guy solo, first solo, for instance, if we were expecting an RTT and a, and a freight flight to come in, we wouldn't do that. And unless that person had been exposed to that and was well and truly demonstrating an ability to deal with a, a high-speed aircraft or a high-performance aircraft, 
from the circuit system, for instance. And weather? I know some people will have maybe written your off manual or just as a, as a rule of thumb that the wind is above 15 knots and there's no solo type thing. I guess there's pros and cons to having a, a fixed limit. But what do you normally talk about in terms of, of weather? Because people could, some places are windy all the time. So the students always flown in windy conditions. In other places, Correct. they haven't flown any wind at all at that point. How do you approach the, the weather side of things? Okay, so we have a similar type thing for first solo and, and early solo. We have a 15 knot limit. However, that's a little bit negotiable. If that 15 knots is a southerly here at Wollongong, we're usually, they're quite capable, even even a little bit higher than that, they're quite capable of handling that. If it was a westerly, no way. We would not we would not be sending them out in that at all because of the turbulent side. But uh, likewise with the northerly, the northerly is usually a pretty steady sort of wind for us from Wollongong. We don't have the, uh, the, the tipping of events, the turbulent events, that sort of wind. But as a general rule, first solo, anything over 15 knots, no, we're not going solo, as simple as that. Because we just don't need to add, um, we just don't need to add that extra dimension to it in those very early sessions. Do we expose them to wind down the track? Well, the truth is we have to because Wollongong is predominantly it has some pretty serious winds for a good portion of the year, and we're on the east coast, so we've got we always have the afternoon easterlies, the sea breezes that come in. Some of those can be quite strong. The beauty of that is, of course, they're usually generally pretty smooth. They don't have the turbulence with them. But manoeuvring around the airport and coming into the hangar and that sort of stuff, there's some real considerations there as well. So there's a whole pile of considerations come into it. But early solo, anything about 15 knots, no, they're not going. Even 15 knots for some of our students, we would not consider them. You know, 10 knots would be the limit for some of the students that maybe have demonstrated not that great ability with control of power and that sort of thing. Yeah, we don't have a we don't have a written limit as such. Uh, so I guess it's just also looking at, at what they've been flying in recently and, and how they're going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought I'd just ask in terms of a, a general figure. But yeah, I know some places will have that where it's you know a fixed limit. As you said, yours is more of a, a guideline with a bit of wiggle room. So just different approaches. Yeah. It is exactly that. And, of course, the big thing for us is we do lots of navs to Nara, Goulburn, those sort of areas. So we cross the Great Spide, maybe up to Bathurst and that sort of stuff. So even a 10-knot Wesley, if they're going out to Goulburn, for instance, that can be a handful for the average person on the street, especially in a 44, on their own, because there is always turbulence associated with those Wesley winds. Uh, we, we suffer here from the Golden Valley, so, you know, it can be quite smooth at Nara, it can be quite smooth in Sydney. In fact, we can be, have no wind in Sydney, but we've got a raging Wesley coming through up through the Golden Valley. You've got to be a bit careful with some local knowledge and understanding that whilst it might be nice and calm here, we really have to go with the forecast. So if we're sending a guy up to, to Golden, I will personally have a look at the Golden forecast I won't leave that up to their judgment. They have a tendency to look at what's here at Wollongong and, oh, yeah, we're right to go. Well, hold on. You know, so, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a judgment call type thing. And it's just something that we need to be able to teach and pass on to our, our young instructors as well. And this has come from a previous conversation I've had with you talking about, and I guess it's more the navigation side, but the time of day when students are going to go out and do a, a solo nav. You brought the point that, have a particular cutoff because if they go on a solo nav and get 
into trouble, they put it in a paddock or even at another airfield, you then start racing against the, the clock for the last line in terms of responding and getting a, a part out or whatever, whatever it is that they need. You've just got that one more stress or, or constraint. So I can't remember what time you sort of used as, as a cutoff. There is a cutoff for winter. It's eleven o'clock. If they're not uh, like right now today, if they're not ready to go by eleven to be airborne by eleven on the nav, even just a couple of hours now, solo this is is not necessarily dual. If they're not ready to go by eleven, well, they don't go. So we we make sure they're in early and they've got their stuff all done and their flight plans are ready and what have you. In summer, because daylight saving goes through to sometimes nine o'clock at night, we'll take that through to uh, they've got to be ready to go by two o'clock. Did that come about by a particular situation? Like, is that something something happened to you with a student and you thought, okay, I'm going to put this kind of requirement in? Or was that just something you sort of built up as you went through? Was it because of a certain incident? It came from experience and it did come from an, um, an incident that, that wasn't a student, believe it or not, was actually a commercial flight that we had where the guy got caught in some weather and had to land in Warragamba Dam and land on one of the plateaus. And we... We were caught between a rock and a hard place because of where he'd landed. We actually, it was getting towards dark. We couldn't get up there to get him out and there was no way of getting to him with a vehicle. So the option was that he was going to have to camp overnight in the aircraft, which was not that desirable because he wasn't prepared for it. He didn't have, he certainly had water because he had the dam there, but he didn't have anything else. He didn't have food or blankets or anything like that. And as, as a result of that, we did do that. Now on that, occasion by the way he, he got caught by weather but he got a bit of an opening and was able to get airborne and get home right on last night but had that opening not happened he would have been stuck overnight in a place that we couldn't get to him you know we had he had no mobile coverage we got the message that he was on the ground in there through another aircraft so he couldn't talk to us we didn't know whether he was okay or not we couldn't get to him by road we couldn't get to him by air because of the latest of the day so yeah, for that reason, we've actually we put that that requirement on our on our solo nav. The next point was confidence, but I think you've talked probably a fair bit about that in terms of the instructor side. The next one after that was, was fatigue. Yep. So I don't know if you want to combine them together. If there's anything else you want to talk about confidence, but fatigue, especially I've seen you'll do a session of circuits and you're ready to send someone solo, but you just start to see their performance just start to fall off. It's like okay, probably not today. Okay, so that. You know that's an interesting thing, and that's not that is um, that, that's certainly particular for solo. You know, we have people come and they'll they'll turn up at the school and they'll go right. I, I, I want to do this fast, so I'm going to do four hours a day. And I say to them straight away, well, for two hours a day, you're just going to give me money for that jam because you're going to be peaked out by two hours in the early stages. And we we stop them from doing four hours a day because the average guy on the street can't do four hours. Now I'll give you a really good example. I had a guy today that was doing basic IF in the helicopter for towards the night flying. And the basic IF is done in daytime under the hood, right? He said he wanted to do three hours today. And I said, well, uh, we've got to do two hours under the hood. It's only two hours in a day. Said, uh, but that will peak you out. He was actually at his limit around about our, our minute 40. <laughs> uh, and we had to actually come. He was peaked out. He, he actually said to me, Peter, I, I, and I could see the performance deteriorating. He started to lose track of the instruments and what have you. And and I I had pointed out to him, you 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 don't want to do three hours with me because you won't be able to do it. We actually had to come back and land and have a cup of coffee and a break and go out and do the second session. 
and he was fine. But the point is, this was a guy that actually has got the commercial license, and this really fatigued him out in a very short space of time. So depending on the workload, so in a um, circuit, for instance, picking just the time of the day, let me give you a good example of that. I had a guy that used to fly every Thursday morning at 8 o'clock, and he really struggled on a lot of the occasions. And I said to him one day, I said, why, why do you have this? Can you fly on the week? I know weekends I spend with my, my kids. And I said, so why do you pick Thursday morning at 8 o'clock? He said, oh, I'll come off night shift. So, and it explained what was wrong with his training. It was that he was coming to us from having done a 12-hour night shift at a factory. And Thursdays, he used to come from the factory and he'd come to us and do his lesson. Well, he was dead tired. So we changed his training. We actually took his lessons to the afternoon on the Thursday. So he came straight from the factory and went home and had sleep. And his improvement was noticeable straight away. So fatigue is a very, very important thing. Very important. And fatigue, some people can handle, you know, big days and that sort of stuff. A lot of people can't. Simple as that. Especially early on in their training. It could just be hovering. Like, it's not as though hovering is a, a physically fatiguing thing, but those first couple of hovering lessons, people come back and, and they are, are shattered. They you know, sit at the table and have a coffee, and that's about all they can manage. I've had guys that come back from a session of hovering, and all I've done is lay down the lounge and go to sleep <laughs> um, because it is mental. You're talking about using dimensions that they've not, they've not been, not ever had to actually put into play. So we're talking about left, right, up and down, forward and aft, and then throw an engine in as well. So we're talking about four-dimensional type stuff. And the, the average guy on the street is not accustomed to that. That's why we see quite often a person that drives bobcats and earth-moving equipment and what have you. They normally have that dexterity with the controls because they are actually used to using dimensional type controls. You know what I mean? Yeah, and when people come through and put it on the application, we have a bit of an interview process we go through. And one of them is, you know, what hobbies or yep. skills have you done that have helped you with hand-eye coordination? And I love it because I've had a couple of people come through and say, yep. oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Bobcat driver or, you know, I've got, I've got a Bobcat license. And it's like, awesome, I can tick <laughs> against that particular requirement. Absolutely. The, um, the, don't, don't take this the wrong way. Quite often somebody that's doing that sort of thing as a job they'll be very, very good at that side of things, but then the theoretical side of it will be a struggle for them because quite often they're doing that sort of job because they don't have the, the educational background to do something else. And, and please don't let me pigeonhole people, but that is often the case. The, so, so you know, it may be great at the eye-hand stuff, but when it comes to drawing a line in the chart, for instance, then the emphasis needs to get placed on that. So. Yes, it takes uh, the theory at the moment with the exams is uh, definitely a challenge for, for a lot of people. Last couple of points there, we'll just get through them again, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, aircraft configuration, I think you spoke about before. So yeah, in terms of checking the doors, you, obviously the things like the instructor seatbelt is secure. Uh, headsets aren't going to fall down and hit the collective and, uh, and scare the, the jeebas out of someone. Release items, uh, and obviously in most cases the dual patrols are going to be staying in for this one because you're going to be jumping straight back in. Is there anything different about the aircraft yep. configuration you can think of that you've kind of thought about in the past? Yeah, look, I just make sure that there's nothing there that's going to distract them. I'll close my vent on my side 
I'll make sure the headset's either pulled or I'll, I'll take it with me. I'll put that, I'll wear it out, you know, so that I'm not affected by the noise or anything. The other thing, just out of interest, like when you first send somebody solo, I find that I'll wear a, uh, a Dayglow uh, shirt. Two reasons. One, I'm, I'm going to be standing on the side of the airfield. That's the first point. But also, it gives them something to look for. You know what I mean? Because I want them to come back and land somewhere close to where I am and, and I'll stand out like the proverbial dog stalls when they come around on the final. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll really say that I've got to land, you know, that sort of thing. I'll get them to land adjacent to me. So little things like that. But And they know you're there then as well. They can see you there. There's a, there's a lot of confidence building when they know that you're there. And uh, I have actually had a situation once where a guy was struggling like you wouldn't believe, could not put the machine on the ground. And, of course, the longer he stayed there, the harder it got. And I actually had to walk out in front of the helicopter about 20 feet in front and just stand there and got him to look at me and then use hand signals to get him on the ground. And I got him on the ground. And, uh, yeah, he'd, um, he just lost all his confidence. Uh, he'd, he'd been solo a couple of times, by the way, but the configuration was just not quite right. The aircraft had a little bit more fuel in behind him than him. And he was borderline for the seat limit. He was quite light. And the machine just didn't want to behave the way that, that he was used to. And he was having trouble putting it on the ground. So you, you can have that sort of stuff, but you've got to be prepared to deal with it. And you can, sort of can't give up, throw the radio on the ground and walk away. <laughs> Unless you want to explain the helicopter is. But, um, yeah. But you've got to be, just got to be attuned to that sort of thing, you know. On that particular day, there was nothing that was telling me that this guy was going to struggle. You can get that situation developed, by the way. You said then he comes back and may, may even be a different runway, and now you've got a bit of an issue that uh, that he needs to make some decisions about, and so do you. Yeah, that's definitely... And the other part there is traffic too. You obviously, you start, there's no traffic, and then all of a sudden the, the three aircraft from the, the local aero club who just left an hour ago are all arriving back into the circuit. And uh, what the, we've gone from no no traffic to everyone coming back in from the from the next wave. You just remind me of a really good point when you're talking about the the weight. A gotcha there is the minimum pilot weight because we don't think about that when we're flying two up. But you jump out if you've got a light person, you suddenly need to start thinking whether it's a CAG yep. or the or the seat limit. You might have to pre-plan to take some ballast out with you. Yeah, well, we used to we in the twenty two we used to have a I think we used to call him Mister Wobbly. And it was a it was a, a carry all, and it had a plastic bag inside of it full of sand. Whenever we had somebody that was pretty minimal on the weight side of things, we used to land next to Mr. Wobbly, and I'd get out and put him under the seat, uh, under my seat. We over the years we we and and I know Bankstown Helicopters, for instance, used to have a truck battery. They used to do the same. They'd go and land at this little airstrip and at Little Africa, and they'd get out and put the battery under the seat. And then we we all agreed over some time that it was actually better to teach somebody to deal with the machine instead of trying to keep it as close as possible because there was going to be a point in time when you weren't going to be able to put Mr. Wobbly under the seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So we don't do that anymore, although we will put a weight in if we've got somebody that doesn't meet the minimum seat requirement. That's interesting. A very interesting one. I once flew a guy down to his property. He owned the helicopter and it was a 22 and we, I landed his property and uh, I was, he got out and he was staying there, right? And I was flying home. So I took off and got airborne. And when I got airborne and took off, 
I realized I was sitting in the instructor's seat yeah. in a 22. And of course, solo only from the right seat. And I went, oh, this is going to be interesting. It didn't do anything stupid. But anyhow, what I did was I climbed up to 2,000 feet. I I still had 20 minutes to go back to Nara. And um, I climbed up to 2,000 feet and I slowed the machine right down to see whether it was going to do anything stupid. You know, was it going to tip over on me or go out of control or anything? Anyhow, it didn't do anything. So um, all I did was I... I went back and I landed as per normal. You would never know there was a difference. So I'm not quite sure. I don't know why there is that limit on that solo only from the the instructor's seat because it certainly didn't do anything to me that day. Yeah. By the way, I was going to say we won't we won't uh, we won't go and try that one too often. It might be the the, the switches on the collective and and things, but. uh, Back back to the yeah, that's the second aspect of that. Ergonomically, the machine is set up. To the other side as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the wrong fuel combination that might have been a different. You know, it might have had a difference having all that fuel on one side, not on the other side. So if the because uh, the auxiliary runs dry first, but I I didn't have that situation on that day. For anyone who's training in the the Hughes three hundred or the H two six nine, it's not a, a seat limit weight in that yep. one, but it's if you've got a light pilot, you can get pretty close to the uh, the aft CG. So just something to, for that particular type to, to look out for. Uh, I'm just looking at that is great. looking at what else we've got here. We might let's just finish on on this one, and and I, I guess it's a bit of a heavy side of things. I don't know if you've been involved in, in that, but the the post accident investigation part of it. Right? I guess we want to talk about this because if you're sending someone solo and something happens, it's the old iceberg type thing, like the the amount of time or risk you take and the benefit of trying to get someone up if things aren't 100%. When something goes wrong, it's a massive, you know, forget the fact that you know, it's death or injury or, or aircraft damage, the amount of time and, and money and auditing and everything that goes on afterwards is, is huge. Uh, we kind of forget about that in the day-to-day flying and the operations we do, but if you're sending someone up, that, that momentary decision you have of sending them up can then be something that you spend the rest of your life looking back on. You could not only spend the rest of your life looking back, you could spend the rest of your life paying for it, and you could you could spend a chunk of time in jail if the wrong thing were to, to occur. Uh, this is one thing that, that, that the, when, we get a, when we get an instructor getting close to get, being able to send people solo, first solo in particular, we emphasise to them that the the onus, the safety of that flight does fall on them. It's only when a person actually has a licence or when they go out and do something stupid and negligent knowingly that the that they're responsible for it. But up to that point in time, it's the instructor that signed off and let that guy go solo that is actually responsible for that flight. And if, God forbid, somebody did get killed or they killed somebody on the ground or something like that, you, you, you know, I, I say to this, I only said this today in, in my classroom to the owner of the company. You don't want to fuck around with that stuff because the truth is you haven't been to court until you've been to a coroner's court. Nobody wishes to be there. It is not a nice place to be. And, um, and you know, you can watch all the court cases you've seen on TV. You don't see nothing until you've been to the coroner's court. They rip you to shreds. And... They can ruin, you know, let me give you, this is totally off the record sort of thing. Uh, the ramifications are really quite serious. 
when you uh, send a person solo uh, because the onus does fall on you. Now, the private pilot goes out there and flies in the power line and kills somebody or does something stupid and what have you. The onus does fall on them. We've seen that time and time again uh, once they actually hold the licence. But until they actually hold that licence, you're the licence holder for that person, basically. And what happens to them is entirely, entirely incumbent upon you. And when you stress that to instructors, yep, they, they sometimes, it sort of can be pretty daunting that uh, when, they, when it, you stress that to instructors that the onus falls on you. To, you if you haven't ticked the right box, or you, you haven't got anything. And when I say that, I don't mean that the, you only need somebody, say, you, say some bloke gets killed, he crashed a helicopter and what have you, and then a lawyer down the track gets hold of his training record and says, look, you know, this guy had not been, there's no record there that you ever taught him how to deal with an engine failure. If that's the case, you may have well have done it, but you, if you haven't recorded it or you haven't made sure everything was ticked off and uh, you gave him a three and you should have given him one or something like that, then you may actually end up sued. It's just, that's the bottom line of this whole bloody game. So you, you, it pays to be squeaky clean and, and right on top of your game. Never assume anything is the other bit. That's why instructors get huge salaries to, to cover the, the risk. <laughs> cover all the lawsuits. <laughs> look, the, um, yeah, look, the truth is it's, it's a funny sort of game. It, it seldom ha- It does happen, though. Uh, uh, let me tell you something. Just totally off the record again. The other part there, Peter, is the insurance companies. So the example I'm thinking of uh, was a, an R22 that, that rolled over and there was no, no injuries, but the aircraft was pretty well totaled on a solo flight. And, and again, the insurance companies were, were there and straight into exactly as you said, basically pulling open the, the training records and wanting to see all the documentation. So it's just one of those things that every time we, you know, you just have to be a professional flight instructor. You have to do all your recording, all the paperwork with, with, goes with the flight. And adds to the flight time as well because by the time you do briefing, it doesn't finish when you come back and land. It's uh, you've got to then include that debriefing and the, and the paperwork and that block of time that you allocate to that person. And the other thing I always say to people, I've probably said this to you before as well, insurance companies are all about not paying. If they can get out of paying, you know, $200,000 or something, that's what they're going to do. That's the way it works. All right, look, I think we've given that a pretty good rundown. So we've kind of covered bits and pieces there in terms of from the student side and the instructor side. And hopefully that gives people a bit to, to think about. Uh, so Peter, look, thank you very much again for, for your time and taking us uh, through that and your bits and pieces of your input on it. It's really been appreciated. And thanks very much for yeah coming on the Rotary Wing Show. You're welcome. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Holstein from Touchdown Helicopters at Wollongong, south of Sydney. I hope you got a lot out of that. That sort of discussion is, again, exactly why I started this podcast, to to capture these chats that happen in hangars and crew rooms around the place, but then are essentially gone afterwards, and only a handful of people get to benefit from it. There could be one or two things in there that make all the difference for you if you're a student or an instructor. If you want to reach out to Peter or share your take on all things First Solo related, don't be shy. Jump in and and leave a comment on the blog post for episode 88 at rotarywingshow.com. That could be a story about your own First Solo or someone else's or, again, as an instructor, you know, if you've got a really good tip that you've learnt from a hard experience along the way, then 
share it, uh, drop a, a note in so that the rest of us can learn from it as well. A little bit of a disclaimer, I guess, to throw on the end of that. Please, if you are training somewhere at the moment and your school does something different to what we've discussed, please don't rock up and, and tell them you heard on a podcast that they are, are doing it wrong. There are lots of different ways of doing things and different considerations depending on the location, the aircraft being used, possibly the, the local country regulations, and a whole heap of things. If I was in charge of the Australian training requirements for the commercial 105-hour course, so if I was king for, a, for the day, personally, I would like to knock the 35 hours of solo flight time back down to 25 hours solo, and then use those spare 10 hours for more dual training of emergencies, of using electronic flight bags or tablets in the aircraft, uh, going through additional scenario-based training, uh, like setting up for aerial photography, and using it towards max all up weight training. I think we get more benefit out of using those 10 hours that way. This episode, like all the others, is brought to you thanks to the following awesome people. Rindell, Michael, Jason, Peter, Tony, Kevin, Heath, Gareth, Chris, Jake, Eric, Kirillin, Shannon, Mark, John, Hal, AJ, Jack, Michael, Brent, Jason, Bill, and Mike. These are all people that help cover some of the bandwidth fees and hosting costs that go into getting these little audio bits across the, the magic of the internet and into your earphones. Just remember that you are doing a, a very important job, which is keeping my beautiful and amazing wife happy by supporting the show. If you want to help out and be part of the support crew, please have a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Did you do your homework from the last episode, which was to revise the location and operation of your aircraft ELT, Emergency Located Transmitter? Hopefully you did. I'm back at work, which is very exciting. Our school here in Queensland has now gone back, so I've been let off the hook as a grade seven homeschool teacher and get to teach flying again. And it's certainly been a, an experience. I have used the time at home, however, to teach myself a new editing software. Might be hard to tell, but hopefully I can get a, a slightly more consistent audio quality and loudness levels. That was thanks to help from one of our now ex-students, Matt Robig. So Matt, thank you very much for that. Right, wishing you all the very best and I'll catch up with you in the next episode. This is just an attack on and recording here on my uh, iPhone in the room at uh, the airfield. So I've got uh, five students here. So four have just gone solo in the last week or even less than that. Uh, Steve just went this morning and Anthony are ready to go next week, we reckon. So yeah, what was your experiences? I don't know, we'll start with you, TJ. Uh, what did you think going solo? Was it kind of different what you expected? Was it the, the biggest thing you noticed? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a little bit scary, a little bit daunting. I noticed CMG chain was pretty big, a lot bigger than you guys told me, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, biggest thing I found though is doing a couple laps beforehand, beforehand calmed me down. Like each lap I did became just calmer, smoother, and easier. There's no way I would have wanted to have done it first lap of the day. Yep. Um, so yeah, after I guess it was three or four circuits with Mark, I felt yeah, calmer each time, so that's, that's my input.
see we were this morning that sensation of downwind of looking across at the airfield and then there's, there's no one in their seat what that feel like yeah not um not having someone to talk to is like that is one of the biggest things that i found that's different like there's the performance changes which yeah they're pretty obvious cfg and power but yeah not having someone to talk to is kind of weird very weird sensation yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, same as TJ leading into it, had a lot of you know, apprehensions about it. But it was amazing the, the feeling afterwards going solo, how much of a confidence boost it was. And knowing that the instructors had faith in you, that they wouldn't have sent you solo if they didn't think that you were ready. And then afterwards, you know, sort of reflecting on that, um, it's a pretty cool feeling to know you've progressed like to that point where you, know, you can pilot the aircraft yourself and then the instructors have faith in you to do that. It's, it's a pretty good confidence boost. Yeah, especially when you remember those first hovering lessons in that. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, Anthony is still on, you're on the, on the other side of it yet to, to go there next week. But uh, I don't know, Kellen, what, what, like, how would you feel afterwards looking back, that sort of on the other side of being solo, was it a big deal afterwards, did you think? Or was yeah, it, it was sort of... definitely a big deal afterwards. It's, as Fresh said, massive confidence boost. Yeah. Definitely feel a lot more confident. And even just the next lesson after that, is way more confident again. And each lesson past that, it's less and less of a thing and almost normal now, even though we've done it a handful of times. Yeah, pretty much the same sort of, same deal. Like, I thought it was real different just sitting in the hover, sitting sort of low to the right. But that was a weird feeling. Like, just the weight change was pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. We were chatting this TJ watching when Steve went up, when you're talking the hover height, like when you're sitting there in the cockpit, you kind of assume what the height is, but when you're outside looking back at the, at the helicopter hovering, yeah, you realise that yeah, you might just have to bring that hover height down a bit from what it, what it feels like, mm -hmm. looking at how high am I. But, uh, yeah, Anthea, what's your thoughts at the moment? <laughs> you still got you know, three, three flights to go, but... I'm pretty uh, excited. Yeah. I'm pretty nervous. I'm worried about how it's going to feel after the first takeoff and the first landing. But hopefully the training kicks in and it just becomes second nature. Yeah, I reckon it's, yeah, it does. I reckon yeah. it's less of a deal. Like it looks bigger leading up to it than it does when you look back on it. It, it seems like a really, you know, big, uh, momentous kind of thing. But then once you're over the other side, it's kind of, oh, it wasn't, yeah, such a, that wasn't so bad after all. It's like what Grish said, so it is a big confidence boost. Yeah, just knowing how to. I did that, oh cool, and then you go up and get it. It's like, why the hell was I worried? Yeah, just like three or four weeks of flying and we're going up here on our own. It's pretty crazy. Awesome. All right, thanks, Kate. Cool. Thanks.